So in 2020, they were looking at guidelines again, and the committee who worked on them recommended dropping sugar from 10% of the calories to 6% of the calories. The ultimate guidelines stuck with the 10% figure. And ultimately, their rationale for it was there wasn't enough science to show that there was a reason to change, that the status quo was 10%, and that even though the committee had sort of staunchly advised dropping it to 6%, given their read of the science, again, leaning toward that sort of conservative, don't change it unless we really have a good reason to change it, the guidelines stayed at 10%. Now, what's the difference between 6 and 10%? Maybe it's not that much, but if you think about a kid's school lunch and how big of a Twinkie they're going to get in their school lunch or how much dessert or how much added sugar can be in the foods that they're eating, over time, that, that definitely makes a difference. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health, and this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new level. Dietary Guidelines probably heard of the food pyramid before. You've probably even seen the idea of what you should have on your plate. Where did this even come from? Well, Mike Haney, editorial director at Levels, he and I sat down and we deconstructed the idea of where did these dietary guidelines come from in the first place? How are they put together and how can people think about them? There's a lot of history with dietary guidelines, that being some of the macroeconomic factors, and then that being some of the things like policy and governance, why they're not quick to change, and what people can do about them, how they can think about them. Should they follow them, or should they follow independent advice or feedback from other thought leaders in the space? Essentially, everyone has to think about things when it comes to diet, food, fitness, lifestyle, from a personalization perspective. Well, Mike and I, we sat down and we deconstructed one of the blog posts. We called it a blog TLDR, and we really had a conversation around it. It was a really good opportunity to take some of the things that are in written form, break them down to a conversational level, and probe, ask further questions like, why did this happen? How did all these things come together? It was really fun to do with Mike, and it felt a little bit NPR-ish. We'll probably do it again. This was one of our continued content experiments. Here's the conversation with Mike. We're going to deconstruct this blog post, this one that is why have dietary guidelines been so wrong and how do they still need to change? So why don't we go back to the way this came about to begin with is the way that a lot of blog posts are formed within our team. It's just like this lens of like, do you have any info on this? Yeah, exactly. This one actually came from Tom Griffin, who's our head of partnerships lobbying a question over, I think it was Slack at the time, saying, hey, he'd come into contact somewhere with with the dietary guidelines, the sort of official dietary guidelines, and just had this moment of revelation that like, these are really different than the kind of advice we find ourselves giving to people or that our advisors give to people. And like, why is there such a disconnect? Why is it the case that specifically the question he was asking, and we'll get into it, is why do they demonize fat so much when like we're often telling people to eat more fat or sort of eat the fat before the carbs and why are carbs and sugar still such a part of the guidelines? 
And it was a really interesting question that we hadn't really dove into. We dive a lot into the science, we dive a lot into nutrition advice, but looking kind of upstream at those government regulations was a space we hadn't got into. Fortunately, a lot of our advisors had written about this quite a bit. Um, Mark Hyman and, and Rob Lustig have both covered this in their books. So they were sort of good jumping off points for us to, to dive in and, and start to research this a little bit more and try to answer that question. It's funny because we've all heard of, there are certain things like we've all heard of dietary guidelines, but like what exactly, like break it down, like what exactly are dietary guidelines and how did they, like, how do we even <laughs> form them the way that we did? Yeah, it's a good question. It's that phrase is a little bit of a catch-all, right? When people say dietary guidelines. So there are official government dietary guidelines. And, and basically that started Roughly in the late 60s, 70s, that the government started saying, hey, we should probably have some kind of official policy guidance around all of the different departments that interact with food. And we'll talk about what all those are and, and the impact they have now. The first official ones were really in 1980. And so now there's an actual sort of statute that says the government has to produce every five years a set of, of dietary guidelines. And it's a joint project between the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Health and Human Services. They work together to produce these. They update them every every five years. So when we say the government dietary guidelines, or we think of the food pyramid or what's now called my plate, the kind of stuff that's taught in health class, that's the basis of where those come from. But what can be a little confusing is there's other organizations that offer dietary guidelines, like most kind of medical professional organizations. So I'm thinking the American Heart Association, the American Diabetes Association, the Cancer Association, Several of those organizations also put out their own guidelines. So you might see stories about guidelines and really what they're talking about is maybe the American Heart Association has updated their guidance on saturated fat or on a particular topic. That's different than the government dietary guidelines. So mostly what we're talking about in this article are the government dietary guidelines, these sort of official body that has to be produced every five years by statute. Do you think there's confusion around these guidelines because there's the we'll call it like the macro governance like here are the dietary guidelines but then if you're from a personalization standpoint if your lens is you're more concerned about health and wellness as it relates to type 1 or type 2 diabetes or let's say heart disease do you think that causes confusion for people where they're like which ones do i follow because i would imagine like they're juxtaposed in <laughs> like one says do this and the other says like don't do this is that like relatively true or like what's the outlook on that? I think it was absolutely true. And there's, there's actually pretty good research on this, that people are fairly confused about nutrition advice. I think there's a stat that we cite in one of our articles, something like 60% of people say they are confused. They don't know what is sort of the right thing to eat. So I think it's absolutely true that people are confused about nutrition advice. I wouldn't lay most of that at the feet of the dietary guidelines. And I think that's probably beyond a, you know, an official government program or even the guidelines from any of these individual organizations to solve. I think that comes about because there's a lot of news coverage, you know, the kinds of stuff we write, the kinds of stuff a lot of people write, health publications, mainstream news publications about nutrition and dietary advice that's often based on research. There's a ton of nutrition research that happens. And so as new discoveries come out, we write about them because we're always looking for new and interesting things to write about. The trick is that nutrition and this speaks back to the dietary guidelines, nutrition advice is really tricky. Nutrition research is really difficult. It's really hard to do. We have a whole piece that is sort of eight ways to, to read a, a nutrition study that accounts for this and, and break down some of those reasons. But you know, briefly, it's that 
there's population level research you can do. And then there's sort of individual intervention research you can do where a group of people eat this thing and another group of people eat that thing or don't eat it. And then we see what happens over eight weeks. There's those kinds of studies. Some are blinded, some are not. Then there's like big epidemiological studies where we look at usually survey data for maybe tens or hundreds of thousands of people and say, okay, over 10 years, people who ate an average of two eggs a day had 10% less chance of diabetes. I'm making that up, but there's stats like that. Both of those have their flaws, right? The first group of, of studies is using necessarily small groups and how strict that study design is can really influence what you end up finding out. The epidemiological stuff is great because you have a huge population, but it's also just much less specific. Nutrition surveys are usually based on recall. People often don't remember what they ate that morning or they're sort of aspirational in saying what they ate. And so it's really difficult to tease out through any kind of a study design the answer. Also, we're constantly learning, right? Nutrition is really individual. And that's, I think, one of the themes that's evolved over the last, I don't know, decades of, of nutrition research and is even starting to be acknowledged in the dietary guidelines themselves and the most recent ones is how individual nutrition is for all kinds of reasons. First, biological, our bodies react differently to different kinds of food, but also cultural reasons, affordability reasons, historical reasons. There's all kinds of reasons that nutrition is individual. So take all of that. And there's a lot of other reasons. Those are just a handful. All of that says, boy, it's really hard to tell people what to eat. And as a person trying to read guidance, whether that's in a story in the New York Times or a story on our site or the official government guidelines, it's really difficult to distill down the question of like, all right, what should I eat? Even though that's what a lot of folks really want to know. So I do think there's confusion that comes in. And I think the Put in the most charitable way, I think the goals of anybody who's putting out sort of dietary guidelines, whether that be the you know American Heart Association or whether it be the government, or even to the extent that we try to distill things down into understandable guidance, we're trying to cut through some of that confusion and give people some something to sort of latch onto and say, all right, at least directionally, here's some kind of advice. And I think that's that's probably the right lens to look at the dietary guidelines through as opposed to this is is absolutely the the word from God. And we can get deeper into sort of why that is and the challenges that exist in creating government guidelines. But, you know, to understand that these are these are directional at best. And naive and silly question to ask, but I'm making an assumption here that these differ from country to country, like because of diet and cultural differences, there's not like a global, I mean, there's probably going to be overlap. I'm making an assumption there. There's going to be some overlap in, in dietary guidelines, but like one country's prescriptive diet guidelines, like follow this food pyramid, follow this arrangement of nutrition can be completely different than another country. And then people are sitting there and they're like, which ones do I pay attention to? Is that is like, what's the outlook on that? Yeah, a hundred percent. That's absolutely right. And really what we tried to tackle in this piece was just the U.S. guidelines, although it's a re- it would be a really interesting question to look at how much they differ, particularly among, among different cultures, right? You'd probably find that the Western European guidelines are, are relatively similar to the U.S., although Europe in general tends to take a more restrictive or conservative approach to things like additives or genetically modified things. You might get some differences, but certainly in other non-Western European cultures where the food practices are just different, um, the kinds of local crops, the historical 
things that people eat are different, you'd, you'd get fairly different guidelines. I think you're right that there would be a commonality. We're all human. Human biology works a certain way. Um, I don't <laughs> think there's any any guidelines that would say like, you know, you should eat 10 pounds of sugar a year and that's great for you. So there, I think there will be commonality, but definitely in terms of the the specific foods, the arrangement of proportions of those foods in a given diet, I think would vary a, a fair amount. Here, we just looked at the U.S. ones because it's sort of all we could tackle and, and probably the most relevant, at least to our U.S. audience. There you go. Now, there's a, another post to do some forensic investigation into global uh -huh. guidelines. So let's go into the this idea of like, the food pyramid it's the the thing that we hear colloquially all the time the the pyramid the classic pyramid but at the base of that pyramid seems to be carbohydrates which from what we know from metabolic health not all carbs are made equal one and two carbohydrates in general especially naked ones that being ones that aren't paired with fat fiber or protein will have an impact on metabolic health. We know that. That's what we do. That's what we see based on having CGM as a technology. So why don't we go into this idea of like, what exactly is the pyramid? How did carbs get to the base of that pyramid to begin with? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, first we should acknowledge that the dietary guidelines, the US dietary guidelines have actually dropped the pyramid. So the pyramid that we also grew up with that we remember being you know, on a poster in the corner of our class they don't actually use that anymore. They swapped it out for something called my plate. And it's literally a picture of a plate and they're sort of showing different proportions of what should be on your plate. And they have moved much more toward emphasizing, you know, whole fruits and vegetables and away from emphasizing certainly refined grains, but even dropping proportions of whole grains. So the guidelines have definitely moved in, in the right direction in, in the last sort of five or, or 10 years, still lots of things that need to be changed. And we could talk about those, but in terms of where it came from, Dr. Lustig actually points out in one of his books that the idea of the pyramid actually originated in Sweden. We didn't come up with it. Sweden dropped it, but we kept it as a device to sort of communicate these guidelines. And there's a lot in the piece that gets goes through the history of, of how grains ended up playing sort of a larger role or carbs ended up playing a larger role. And it can definitely take on a sort of conspiratorial tone. And there's some great detail in there that both Dr. Lustig and Dr. Hyman go into in their books. And there's other articles out there about it as well in terms of the people who hired this person to write and what their credentials were. I think the two things that I really learned in this piece that I took out of reading that as a way to think about these guidelines and what why a particular portion is 60% of the plate instead of 40% or why were carbs there in the first place in such a big role is, one, the idea we just talked about that nutrition science is hard. And so these are never going to be perfect. And they're also not going to be at the cutting edge. They are probably because this is a government program. It happens every five years as a government program. It is subject to a lot of bureaucracy that these guidelines are always going to be a little bit behind the most recent science. You know, the departments that put these out are going to be conservative in what they're telling people to do. They're not going to try to be on the cutting edge because I think, you know, again, looking at it charitably, I think the thing they want to avoid is any more whiplash than necessary from one set to another, right? They don't want people to get the sense that the government is changing its mind every five years about what you should do because there's enough confusion out there already. So if what you're trying to do is just directionally point people the right way, 
you want to try to come back to some very basic things that are pretty widely agreed upon. And on that spectrum that all nutrition science lies on between really front end kind of new theory, maybe only shown in animal models or cell models, all the way up to things that have been maybe studied for decades and that are pretty widely agreed upon, government regulations that happen every five years for government guidelines are going to lean more toward the latter. They're going to lead more toward the more well-established stuff. So even though most of the sort of current food advice, you know, probably turned away from carbs and refined grains sooner than the government did, it just takes a while for those guidelines to catch up. The other point related to the fact that this is a government project and where I think it explains a little bit more some of the, what can seem like sort of backroom dealing in, in terms of how these guidelines came about is that as a government project, it is not 100% science driven. It's just never going to be, you know, politics and lobbying are going to come into the creation of this kind of project, which is a way of saying the food industry is going to have a say. That's just the way the government works. And, and I'm not here to sort of debate the morality of that, or even that as a practical issue, but I think it's useful to recognize and to know that, that, yeah, like early on carbs were a big part of the, of the overall mix because the food industry at that time in the sixties and seventies was producing a whole lot of grain and needed something to do with it. And particular food lobbies had a pretty good influence and was able, you know, they were able to, to sort of exert some influence on, on this guidance. And, you know, Dr. Lustig has been a great voice on this and, and goes into great detail in his book to reveal more of how that happens and what that kind of relationship looks like. And even in the last 10 years or so, there were some independent review in the National Academy of Sciences reviewed the process by which guidelines were created and found that there was probably more bias and conflicts of interest on the committees creating the guidelines than is ideal, which is to say relationships with food industry of the people who were working on the guidelines. And this is a big problem in nutrition science in general, that a lot of nutrition science is funded by the food industry because as a nutrition scientist, somebody has to pay for your work. Oftentimes, the best way to find that funding is in the nutrition in the nutrition business. There's a whole other debate about whether or not that actually then influences the science. But all of which is just to remember that when we talk about the, particularly the government dietary guidelines, remember this is a political, this is a product of a political process. And so there's going to be other kinds of influence on this. And it's just another reminder to not take these particular guidelines as sort of, you know, again, that the sort of word from on high and the absolute what we should do but rather directional. And we could talk about sort of, you know, where these guidelines sort of where the rubber meets the road and what they're actually used for and where this starts to matter. The macroeconomic factors are things that play so deeply into this story by the sounds of it. And it's something that (laughs) it's not something that happens over months or years. It's something that happens over decades. And because we know policy and governance and all of these things take so long to change and implement and evolve over time that there's a lot that would go into it. So it's understandable. How much of it do you think also has to do, like you you touch on the science, but how much of it do you also think has to do with the technology standpoint where it's like, well, there wasn't really a good way, like, sure, things could be measured from a science standpoint previously, but now we've got with like glucose monitoring as like one piece of technology. We know that monitoring multiple molecules, multiple analytes in the body, like insulin and cortisol, like there's a huge benefit to being able to do that, especially in real time. But like 
right now we're very far away from that from a technology standpoint. So there's not really like large data sets where we can start to question some of the previous science or even the governance of like these policies. Like how much of the technology piece do you think comes into play where maybe like let's let's do the thought experiment in like 10 years time. Do you think there's like enough data that it's like, man, we should really like flip this like my plate, we shouldn't like flip it on its head because this doesn't make sense anymore. Like, what's your outlook on that? I think that gets into more that question of why nutrition science is hard to do. And I think it is absolutely true that more data is better. And I think, you know, any nutrition researcher would be happy to have access to more kind of a hard data in that way, right? To be able to measure different molecules that are happening in the body in relationship to food. I think it's one factor, you know, I think we do have really good, despite what I said before about the challenges of, of the different kinds of experimental design that exists today, we do also have very good methods for uncovering things. And it's, you know, I think it's always useful to remember, I think it's very easy to, to criticize any kind of scientific research because it's often messy and particularly nutrition science research because it's very messy and confusing. But it's also useful to remember that we have learned a lot and we do know a lot and these processes that we've established and these different kinds of experimental designs do uncover a lot. You know, we know a lot more today about the role of insulin and insulin resistance in the body, about what glucose does in the body, just to focus on our little corner of, of the body. So I think things like having more data, you know, if we had population level glucose readings or insulin readings or cortisol readings or HSCRP readings, absolutely that would help us be that would help inform the research that we do. But even that will not be a silver bullet because you'll still have to take into account all of the confounding factors. You know, that's one of the great challenges of nutrition research is there's a million confounding factors of people's genetics and their microbiome and the part of the country that they live in and how much sunlight they got. And, you know, it's really difficult to tease out all of the sort of confounding factors in, in a way that would say like, oh, well, you know, the average glucose reading for this food is X. Therefore, we can say definitively this food is bad. will just never be the case. There'll always be exceptions to it. There'll be other again, confounding factors that have to be taken into account. But more data will absolutely be helpful in, in revealing more of what's going on in the body, more of the mechanisms. And, you know, as I think our goal here is to be able to, to move a lot of the advice and guidance upstream to make it more individual to allow people to sort of make better choices, which getting back to our topic here of dietary guidelines, you know, will change the role. I think ultimately we're probably talking 20 years down the, down the line here of what dietary guidelines are seeking to do when we ultimately have better individual pictures of what's going on in our bodies and how our bodies respond. And, and that information is widely disseminated, not just concentrated among a very small group of sort of biohackery folks, but if lots of people have access to that kind of data, you can see a world in which that really affects how dairy, dietary guidelines are created and what the purpose of them is. It's so interesting. It's, it goes back to the idea of correlation is not causation because it's really easy to run a regression and find that the rate at which somebody watched the movie Titanic had a direct correlation with the number of glucose spikes they had in a day. And it's like, there you go. And there will be some study on that. IP value. So knowing what we know, like what do today's guidelines still get wrong? Well, there's a couple of points. One, it might be useful to sort of 
back up. And when we talk about what they get wrong and kind of why this matters, one of the things that was really useful to me in this article was answering the question, why do these matter at all? Given everything we've said, right? Food is very individual. These guidelines are never going to be perfect. They're only sort of directional. All right. So like, why do we care? Why does anybody even read these things? Why do we care that the poster's up in our kids' classrooms? And the answer to that is that they do inform an awful lot of policy. So the reason that these guidelines were created in the first place was because there's an awful lot of departments that have to create policy that is much more prescriptive and specific about particular foods or or sort of a nutritional picture. So for example, school lunches, SNAP, which was formerly known as food stamps here, but is a food assistance program, WIC, which is a food assistance program for new mothers and for infants. Those kinds of programs have very specific kind of calorie and macronutrient mixes or specific foods that become part of the policy that say, okay, kids in school lunches have to have X number of servings of vegetables, and here's what counts as a vegetable, or they can only have this much sugar. And that kind of advice does flow downstream from these guidelines. So that's where the guidelines actually do matter. They do direct actual policy that translates into real food that people eat if they're interacting with these government programs, which lots of people do. Half the babies in this country are involved in WIC in some way. So there's there's real impact. Where did they still get wrong? One great example is, is too much sugar. So in 2020, they were looking at, at guidelines again, and the committee who worked on them recommended dropping sugar from 10% of the diet to 6% of the, of the calories, 10% of the calories to 6% of the calories. The ultimate guidelines stuck with the 10% figure. And Dr. Casey Means, our chief medical officer, wrote a great op-ed talking specifically about this and, and diving a little bit more into the role the guidelines play. And ultimately, their rationale for it was that the science wasn't, there wasn't enough science to show that there was a reason to change, that the status quo was 10%. And that even though the committee had sort of staunchly advised dropping it to 6%, given their read of the science, again, leaning toward that sort of conservative, don't change it unless we really have a good reason to change it, the guidelines stayed at, at 10%. Now, what's the difference between 6 and, and 10%? You know, maybe it's not that much, but if you think about a kid's school lunch and how big of a Twinkie they're going to get in their in their school lunch or how much dessert or how much added sugar can be in the foods that they're eating over time, that, that definitely makes a difference. The other ways in which the, the guidelines, I think, still have some room to grow is in the fat question. And that was one of our original questions. It was like, why was fat demonized for so long? And there's a kind of long and involved story around that that intersects with both the science and the sort of politics of it. But again, I think it falls in the sort of conservative side. The guidelines have really, they've evolved to recognize that saturated, that not all fat is created equal. That saturated fat is the thing we should probably focus on limiting, if anything. The trans fat is really the bad fat, the definitely bad fat. And that Fat doesn't play necessarily the role in cardiovascular issues that that had been made out to be for a long time. And so there's still, I think, I think a lot of people would argue that their guidelines around fat are still not up to date with the latest research. But again, I think they still fall on that kind of conservative side of they're just going to be really slow to change, you know. As we said at the beginning, if you're looking for the the cutting edge research, <laughs> don't look to the government dietary guidelines. So given everything, what should people pay attention to them? Should they what's what's the avenue? Like, do you pay attention to this? Do you pay attention to what's the takeaway? Is it pay attention to influencers that you trust, like 
Dr. Mark Hyman or like how, how should people think about it knowing that we'll leave the pyramid where it is and luckily let's hope that they don't take it away from Maslow too because that would just be detrimental to the pyramid. There would be no more pyramids, but what can, what can people do? Like, should they pay attention to guidelines at all or should they just discover diet for themselves based on who they trust in the health and wellness ecosystem as they take their own path for discovery and self-education? So after all we've talked about, you're going to ask me to distill down how people should figure out what to eat. <laughs> Basically, that's the takeaway. Yeah, good, good. We finally solved it here. <laughs> My personal take on this, you know, and again, I'll try to relate it to this particular article is I think where any kind of guidelines, whether they be from a particular organization or the government are helpful is, is directionally, right? Like, and I think you will find as you look across these guidelines, there's not an enormous amount of conflict. It's not like the American Diabetes Association is saying vegetables are terrible for you and the government is saying you should only eat vegetables. They all move in a general direction. And I think that's a lot of what we come back to when we try to impart any sort of guidance towards folks. You know, we're very careful that we don't endorse any particular dietary philosophy. We don't say you should absolutely be vegan or you should absolutely be paleo. We recognize that nutrition is individual. And I think it makes sense not to ignore that. I think people should absolutely take into account, you know, culture, taste, affordability, all the things that influence what we eat. You know, we eat differently as, as parents than we did as younger single people because of just all the factors that come into play about how you make food for your family and what your kids will eat and what you put on the table. I think it's important not to ignore all that. And I think where these, any kind of guidelines or guidance, whether it be from the government or folks that you follow should be taken as directional and you should look for the things that that do sort of intersect. So things like focus on whole foods, try to eat things that actually look like food, try to limit processed food. Like you probably won't go wrong. And by following some of that, that basic kind of advice. And if you just do that, if you limit the amount of sort of additional additives, processed stuff, added sugar, added salt, added fat. And if you focus on eating whole foods that look like foods, that's a good place to start. And I think from there, exactly to your point, you can further tweak if you find people who eat in a way that looks good to you, that is the kind of food that you're interested in. And that as you experiment, find makes you feel better. I think that's another thing that we see a lot in our members as they put on the CGM and they start to adjust their diet and their lifestyle a bit based on the data they're getting. What we hear over and over is, boy, you know, cutting out cereal in the morning or oatmeal in the morning in favor of something that produced less of a glucose response just got rid of my morning slump. It made me feel better. And I think that's an important thing to pay attention to as you kind of hone and refine what you eat beyond that kind of very high level directional stuff, which again, everybody from, you know, Rob Lustig to the government, there will be some intersection and in all of those kind of dietary guidelines based on what we have learned over the past decades of, of nutrition and research. So I think that's the place to start. You know, I think if you look at your diet and you find it is primarily made up of boxed packaged foods and there's a ton of added sugar in it and you find you're not really eating much, you know, whole meat, whole vegetables, whole fruits, that's a good place to start. Beyond that, then, you know, tweak based on, on those other kinds of inputs. It's a good reminder because you hear it often that don't take one source of input as the gospel, right? And so when like, whether it's a book 
whether like, and not about let's, let's just use a wide example of like anything in the world. And I know we're generalizing, but you take one book and you're like, that's the gospel. You take one influencer, you take one podcast, you listen to one thing as the source of knowledge. And you're like, snap your fingers. That's it. I have all, I have everything I need to know about this one thing. And it's the idea of there's so many other factors that come down to it. So if you hear of one person talking about like, this works really well for me. It's like, you have to look at what is in front of you, what makes you feel good. Like what you're saying is like, what do you actually, what makes you feel good? And then if you are using something like a CGM or doing blood panels or, 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 and you're seeing the data, then you can start to find patterns between when I eat these things, they're giving me these numbers and they make me feel this way. Like it's a much better thing than just saying, Hey, I heard Haney talking about this, like one way of eating and that's what I'm going to do. It's like, well, that was maybe Haney's way of eating versus like what works for you. So, I mean, this just in general, as a piece of content blog posts is a huge reminder to say it's there for a reason, but it doesn't mean you should anchor on it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I actually, I pulled out a, a really nice quote as I was looking back at this article. We ended on a, on a really nice quote from Mark Hyman and Food Fix that I think is worth sort of sharing out here. Where he says, your diet should be aspirational, not perfect. It should contribute to better health for you, a better world for humans, including food workers and farm workers, and a better world for the environment, our climate, and our economy. I really like that idea that your diet should be aspirational, not perfect, to just remind us that there is no perfect diet. It's too individual for that. There's a lot of other factors that you can bring into it or not, depending on your own personal values and what's important to you, and relieve a little bit of the stress around uh, thinking you're going to find a perfect diet. And certainly, you know, get a tie back to articles that whatever the government has handed down in their latest my plate traffic is the perfect thing. It's all directional, and that's useful. It's useful to have that direction. Mm-hmm.